episode 53 with writer and scholar Frank B. Wilderson III. Welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. I'm your host, Dario Kalmis, an artist, writer, brand consultant, and generally curious fellow. And each week we bring you a conversation from the pool of black genius to inspire, engage, and help you unleash your own imagination. Thank you all so much for joining us. The following episode is actually part two of our two-episode series on Afro-pessimism with the godfather himself, writer and scholar Frank Wilderson III. If you stumbled upon this episode first, I'd suggest beginning with part one, where you'll get that delicious and lush informative intro, which gives a bit more background on Frank. You can also find out more info in the show notes. And so, without further ado... Part two of our conversation with Frank B. Wilderson III on Afro-Pessimism. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of, I think there's a couple of, you know, um, moments that it seems for me quite pivotal. Um, you know, one um, is, you know, you going to play with friends over a house and, you know, kind of the culture shock of, you know, the food they ate, right? But, you know, sitting around eating, what was it, like a mozzarella and pesto sandwich, and you're just like, what the what the hell is this? But, like, you know, this, this kind of hidden contempt um, that existed because your parents had integrated this neighborhood and the ways in which neighbors used you as proxy for their aggression that they couldn't quite maybe get to your parents at, right? So, you know, you're at a lunch table at your friend's house and the neighbor asks you a question between cigarette puffs, right? How does it feel to be a Negro? You know, something like this. Um, you know how how are you pro- how are you processing that as as a as a child and how you know kind of looking back do you see it's created the work you're doing now? Um, I'm not sure that I was processing it you know very well. What I think I was doing, mm-hmm. uh, and, and let me just I'll say something. What I'm trying to get to the end in the end of was that. By the end of sixth grade in 1960, mm-hmm. the sixth grade was the school year 67, 68. And that's when I did start to process it, but only because of the outside world. Um, mm-hmm. I think that, uh, I think that uh, in, th- in those days, you would imagine that you live in a house. It's a very big house, but it's a very black house internally. And then you go into a, the street, and there are all these other big mansions, but they're all very white mm-hmm. internally. And um, so there were a lot of conversations that were happening in my house that were not happening anywhere else. Mm. Uh, the death, of, the murder of Medgar Evers, for example. Um, <clears throat> Fannie Lou Hamer in the Democratic Convention. Um, you know, the murder of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, you know, these are kinds of things that, that as the oldest child, I would watch the 
expression and the quiet talk on my parents' face or the, or the rage, but they didn't want me to be a racial being, I, mm-hmm. is, is, my, is my sense. So I was picking up these things from them. And then, of course, my mother, um, people not speaking to her for years because she stayed home. My dad drove uh, five miles away to the university every day, but she stayed home from 62 to about 68 uh, before she went back to get her to finish her PhD, um, and that's those are the years in which um, uh, the neighbors uh, basically would not speak uh, to to her. Um, so I wasn't doing a lot of processing, but I but what I why I'm stammering is because what I know about that I know in through hindsight and looking back. And you're asking mm-hmm. me what did I know about that then. And, mm. and what I knew about that then was a lot of uptightness inside the house and a lot of smiling performativity to the neighbors once you stepped out the door. Okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, what I noticed then was that um, my f- when we moved from Mi- Michigan, my dad got his PhD in 62, and we tried to get a place, um, he would come back every day. We were subletting from... A, a white professor's house in another part of the city, and and having gone out to say that he's secured an apartment, they come back to say he had not secured an apartment. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, what's going on here? This is just like, you know, because you and I now know what's going on, you know? Mm-hmm. But I, I wouldn't understand, how could they tell you on the phone and then you come back to the crib and we don't have a place to go to? Are we going to be at this guy's house for the rest of our lives, you know? Um, and um, we've, then we finally got the place in Kenwood. Um, that was a big scandal. Um, mm. the, you know, the CBS affiliate uh, did a show to say that we were blockbusting. Uh, they had to pay a huge amount of money. The banks wouldn't lend us money. Uh, uh, there was just a... To the, to the owner who said, I can never come back to this neighborhood. So I, was, I wasn't processing everything until 68. And mm-hmm. my entire life mm-hmm. changed in 68 because um, something happened, as you saw in the book, with the death of King and the rebellions in the world. And I thought, that means something to me. Mm. That means something to me. And at the end of sixth grade, this, is, this would be like the, uh, the, the last couple of weeks in April of 1968, uh, another black um, bourgeois person who was friends with my dad was asked by my school to come and talk to the kids about what's going on. Now, I thought, oh, this dude, because I knew John Warner. You know, he's, <laughs> he, 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 he was the first black man to own a, a, a small little bank. I said, he's coming to talk to me. Well, no, he was coming to talk to the white kids to, uh, to reassure them that the world was not going to blow up just because 300 cities were burning. And in that whole time period, he would ask questions, and I would raise my hand. My hand would be just, you know, I'm a, I'm a talker, as you can see, anyway. And, <laughs> and I'd be like, talk, talk, talk. I'd be raising my hand. I know that. I know that. You know, I know who. I know that. You know, I know Bobby Seals. I know that. I know that. You know, and he would like look around the room, ignore me, and stuff like that. And I knew him too from social gatherings, you know. And and it's like, oh, years later, I understood. No, 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 no. Everybody white in America thought we were on the verge of revolution, and we were. So he wasn't actually mm-hmm. coming to say, you know, this is like the chick is coming home to roost. He was coming to say, 
it's going to be okay, white kids, go home and tell your parents, you know. And mm -hmm. um, I then went into seventh grade just full of rage. I just started having fistfights a lot, you know, until mm. they, they kicked me out, so. Mm. Yeah, and, 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 and really kind of thinking about, you know, how you negotiated that at the time and then kind of, you know, in hindsight, kind of seeing the ways in which it shaped you, um, but kind of double double tapping on your parents, you know, what are some of the most important lessons they taught you, even if it was just in the way in which they lived and showed up in the world? That's a hard one. We were at loggerheads a lot because mm -hmm. uh, by the time I became a teenager, I, I didn't like the way they responded to this. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and what's this? Uh, Anti-black racism. Aggressivity, mm -hmm. the neighbors. Okay. <laughs> okay. You know, you know, they're very different. You know, my mom would was like uh, calm, cool, and collected, and then all of a sudden, at some at some moment, she just explode on people. Mm -hmm. But the point is that mm -hmm. she had, in my view, hadn't built up an analysis for that explosion, and my dad was was primarily always um, re not reserved, but, but rational. His whole approach to this was rational. And as I said at the beginning of this, this conversation, as I intimated, this is the most anti-black racist, it's the most irrational dynamic in the world. It's not based on sense-making. It's based on fantasy and projection. Mm -hmm. You cannot actually educate the unconscious. I, why? Because education works through secondary processes of signification, and primary processes of signification are really allergic to logic. That's, that's why we have poetry, which is called, in psychoanalysis, called facilitation, where you bring secondary process signification together with primary process signification and produce something new that mm. that draws from both realms of the psyche. But the realm of the psyche that solidifies and secures anti-blackness is primarily in the unconscious. The realm of the psyche mm. that solidifies and secures uh, anti-Latinoness uh, is secured primarily in the pre-conscious. In other words, it is saying you have broken a lot of rules in LA by coming across the border to San Diego. You have broken a lot of rules by doing this, that, and the other. The unconscious doesn't say that to black people. So in other words, I felt that my parents tried to respond to the most irrational dynamic with a rational response. Mm -hmm when an AK-47 would have been a whole lot better, okay? <laughs> Just kidding, FBI. <laughs> so it, what I'm really trying to say is, who knows what would have been better? Because mm. the world is against us, not aspects of the world. And that's mm -hmm. why the end of the world is the only thing that will produce a new dynamic. And so I then had to think to myself, um, you know, well, how do I want to be in the mm. world? You know, um, mm -hmm. I don't. This, these, these rational interventions against anti-black racism feed our frustration. They do not produce 
a productive response. Mm-hmm. How do I know that? Because I lived through, I was born in Emmett Till. I lived through civil rights. I participated in black power. I lived through the smashing of it. And I lived through the, 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 you know, the, the whole new thing in the 90s of post-racialism and everything. You know, what I saw was that there are glimmers in which it's easier to live as a black person. And then all of a sudden the world comes in and smashes it and makes it harder than it was 10 years before. So, mm. so, so but later I softened towards them in understanding that they understood what they were not necessarily acting on. Mm-hmm. That the violence that comes from resistance of any kind is exponentially greater than the dynamic would, would allow for. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. if you ask for a piece of bread, they will lynch you. So in other words, in other words, they had, they, they had a trauma built in from the past, from years of, in Louisiana, that informed mm-hmm. a need to be cautious. This is my, my analysis. And so I understood that. I'm compassionate about that. What I don't agree with is a sense that, that America can be improved through logical conversation and rational dialogue with the other. No, mm. America is a murderous juggernaut. Its job is to murder, okay? That's what it's about. That's its, that's its reason for being. It has killed more people around the world than, than Hitler, Genghis Khan, and Attila the Hun put together, okay? Um, that's what it does, okay? That's how it gets its energy, okay? Uh, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican. So, so um, I, uh, I decided that I had to move in the world in a way that would ultimately bring me more aggro, but uh, make me feel better about myself in the way I move the world, number one. And number mm-hmm. two, when I spoke, even if I'm speaking to a class or a mixed-race audience, you know, I'm not really speaking to them. I'm only speaking to black people. In other words, everyone else in the room is just listening Everyone else, anyone who's reading this book is not black, is just listening. And, and how do I get to that? Through, by bringing the funk with the energy that allows for black people to say, I support the Palestinians against the Israelis, but I also laugh at the Palestinians and ridicule the, the puniness of their demand. In comparison mm. to in comparison to the the totality of my demand, the, my embodied demand. Okay, and so um, ridicule, uh, humor, sarcasm, and no sacred cows has been how I've tried to live. Mm. Mm. You know, I'm gonna. Uh, you know, zero in on that, that Palestinian thing. Cause I'm, I, I could feel, I could feel a future hair stand up on somebody's head when they hear that. And so I think, you know, it, it begs to uh, maybe unpack that, right. Which is to say that the demand that the Palestinians have 
there is an actual reparation for, which is just geography, right? Meaning that it is just a return to land and then there is equilibrium, right? Like that is the, you know, the denouement and the restitution after the conflict, right? And, you know, what you what you posit in the book and kind of in this theory writ large is that there is no reparation for Black people, right? There is no land that can be returned, even if we're speaking about class struggles, right? Like that is a restitution or access to capital, right? Which then resolves the conflict. You know, even when it pertains to gender studies, it is what some level of social equilibrium, right? Uh, I can be a CEO now of a Fortune 500 company as a white woman and and get respect. There is a there is a thing to actually aim towards, which makes it. Uh, because it, because it is something that is tangible, it may be withheld, but it is still tangible. And what the black individual uh, is reaching for, or what would repair them, is actually like ontologically denied them from birth. Um, and so it's it's a void that can actually never be revealed without the complete annihilation of uh, the system writ large because it is baked within it. And we we speak about this actually in um, our second podcast episode with Mabel Wilson, who's an architect and how she frames it is, is through the lens of design and the ways in which design has been leveraged um, to reify blackness over and over and over again. So it's actually the design of the slave ship, right? The actual architecture, the built environment of the slave ship that made what were native peoples, right? To a continent slaves, right? So it actually, design is actually what made them slaves. And then it is design that continues to make you slaves over and over again, right? Because every time a Black person reaches a horizon of humanity, it is design that is actually leveraged, right? The design of uh, of a penitentiary, the design of public housing, um, the design of corporate structures, legal ease, um, all of these systems that remove you once again from um, like the citizenry. So that that's just another frame through which to, you know, kind of understand that. But kind of thinking about, you know, I mean, bro, like I said, I'm like two thirds of the book and I'm like, I mean, obviously this guy would arrive at Afro-pessimism. Like, come on, like you, 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 know, you integrate this neighborhood uh, and you have, you know, uh, neighbors antagonizing you as as a, a preteen, um, you get kicked out of Dartmouth for organizing a protest just so that you know what the workers can eat in public sight because the white students were complaining that seeing them eat was like giving them indigestion, and for you to leave this charge, you get kicked out, right? Like that's. That's the beyond logic, right? Like that's the way in which rationality or reason can ev- can never get to the thing. And even as you wanted to and tried to find a common, and these are white workers, like these are not other black, you know what I mean? <laughs> you know what I mean? And so, and even in that level of kind of like courage and rebellion, like the system rejects you. They say like, no, right? Like this is not a part of it. To then even, you know, being 
chased and followed by like the FBI as a, as a teenager, them following you to Trinidad when you're going there to do research and coming up against this kind of like redacted file, showing up in your studio to find that it's been chained from the inside. And there are people inside going through your shit. And then you see them come out of the window and you chase them down the street. So I'm, I'm, I'm going through all of this because one, people need to read the book because it's fascinating. Um, but really kind of getting to this place of you have an empirical lived experience, really, like really, of the way in which the state um, and America writ large continues to show up in real time and tell you exactly who they are. But as you also said before, that like this is actually relational. This is actually not about... Uh, this is not situational. It's actually relational. And in a prior um, episode with David Zilber, um, who is a, a chef, and he was head of the fermentology uh, fermentation lab at Noma, which is like the number one restaurant in the world, we spoke about relation. We spoke about recipes, right, and the ways in which recipes are actually relational, right? They're relationships to the ingredients. And so what slavery really is, or this kind of dynamic is a recipe that is relational so that even though the ingredients can change, the relationship stays the same. That's how, that's how it works. Um, but I say all of that to say, or to get to, you know, we're of different generations and, um, and I love cross-generational conversations, but what I feel is your experiences. I have not experienced. And so we are a generation, and even those who are younger than me are a generation who sometimes even trust the FBI, right? You know? <laughs> but you know, right? Like, you know, someone someone gets murdered and the cops, you know, fumble everything. And then the black folks say, oh, now there's going to be an FBI investigation as if that's going to bring about a different outcome. And so how do you view um, contemporary black life as it relates to the life that you have empirically lived, right? And how should we be thinking and moving about the world, right? Because the ways in which... Uh, these systems of oppression work is that they just shift the ways in which they oppress. They hide it. It's couched in technology. Uh, remember, I want to say something about something you said before, and then I come back. Yeah, to it. yeah, yeah. Uh, hit, hit. Um, the funny, I, I, my book uh, Afro Pessimism. I had to, I had to cut out um, almost forty thousand words before it went to press because of the contract size. And if you have a book that's over um, one hundred and ten thousand words people in the rest of the world tend not to want to buy it to, to translate. So it was, a, it was, you know, my contract was... But one thing I couldn't write about that thing at Dartmouth was that, you know, you got this, this uh, Nelson Rockefeller's son or nephew writing a letter to the, to the dean saying that the workers give me and the, the boys in Beta House, uh, my frat, indigestion. And then the dean tells the head of food services to remove the workers and not let them take their tray. There are four gigantic dining rooms in this very old building, you know, and they have to go to a certain place at certain times when before, you know, they just, you know, 
as far as I was there, 74 to, to, this, to this moment in March of 78, I've just been sitting at tables and they've been at the other table or whatever, you know. Now they get this order that they got to go somewhere else. Okay, these are, as I said in the book, these are the same people who, if I go five miles out of town in Hanover, they call me the N-word. They got their cars on cinder blocks. Uh, their, their Appalachian Trail white people, you know. I'm, a, I'm not Afro-Pessimist. Afro-Pessimist doesn't exist in 1978, you know. I'm a dyed-in-the-wool Maoist and an existentialist, you know. And I'm like, God damn it, this is for the working class, you know. And I'm trying to tell, <laughs> you know, we had this big fight of 300 black people in the basement of the black house of should we do this, should we not do this, you know. And we finally decide we're going to do something. We're not going to have a mass rally, but we're going to go one by one to where they sit. All right, so I get arrested because I went to sit with them. But their entire arrest ordeal takes about 45 minutes that I won't go into. And these cats are like sitting at this table, just munching away, docilely, quietly, watching. I, I don't mean with glee, like a Southern segregationist. I don't mean with anger, like a revolutionary. I mean, they're just munching away quietly at the table they've been sent to and watching the spectacle of me and this other cat being arrested, you know. And in my mind, I'm thinking, well, goddamn, I thought we had solidarity with the working class. <laughs> you know, so it was a very, very surreal uh, kind of experience, you know. And some of them I worked with in um, across the street. Uh, I was a, a banquet caterer uh, for my work study job, you know, and uh, and I, it was just, it was just, it was just, it was. I wish I could put that in book because it was more surreal than than you can than you could imagine. Uh, you know, and I was, I remember thinking to myself, uh, if, if it was March, I was, uh, I was a month away from becoming, uh, 22 years old. And I, and I remember thinking, aren't y'all going to do something? You know, we did something for you. Aren't y'all going to stand up? <laughs> you know, I just got taken down to the courthouse. <laughs> and, you know. Okay. So that's so I want to say. So circle back to your question. What, what did you say? Oh, just, you know, you know, with the life that you've lived, right, where you have a real lived tangible experience of the power of the state and the, the machination, the machinations of like the American uh, system, you know, there's a new generation of, of black individuals who who don't have that direct right I, I, outside of like the kind of the spectacle of black death with the killing of George Floyd and Trayvon Martin right but we haven't had like FBI people following us at least to our knowledge right like we haven't walked we haven't had you know been locked out of our apartments because there are people inside you know investigating us and so like what what should we be thinking about right like has the world changed or has it shifted right because now we're in a place where i don't know police officers are getting convicted yeah well they are they aren't as you know and and mm. you know um uh here's what i would say i i was not an autodidact in that way i mean if if i i mark 68 as this turning point but i also mark 67, uh, when I was 11, and I, all I want to do is become a priest. So, um, and there's a way in which, what's your, what's your uh, zodiac sign? Scorpio. Scorpio. Oh, oh, oh. Greg, we're on Zoom, Jack. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Says the Aries. Yes, I know that. 
Yeah, there was a way. There was a way in which Aries are these passionate fanatics, and you know, one minute they'll, they'll be fascist, and the next minute they'll be communists, uh, but with the same passion as you know, and see no contradiction. My point is that I went from from you know a devout Roman Catholic to a communist in in twelve in twelve months, but it wasn't because I saw something. It was because people told me something. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's what the state and civil society has crushed, is is the context in which um, black revolutionaries can educate black kids. That's the con- mm. yeah. That's the context I grew up in. Um, mm. There, I just I can't. I mean, if you can imagine, uh, by the time Reagan left office. Uh, at the end of the 80s, there were something like 35 underground newspapers in the, in the country. And um, I'm going to look at my bookshelf to see if I, have, if I brought it here or if I put it somewhere else. Um, no, I don't have it. But, in, in my, so, but, but when he came to office, right, there were something like 635 underground publications. So think about that. Mm-hmm. You could get mm. you could get a critique of the state anywhere you went. You know there were all there was Ramparts magazine, there was the Berkeley Barb, there was there were little things being produced in the Midwest. Um, mm-hmm. People were coming to my parents' house to have meetings and leaving these these tracks. You know, and they did mm-hmm. not ask the question. How do we improve the conditions of the United States of America? They ask other questions. How do we how do we how do we ignite the spirit of Che Guevara, who said one, two, three, many M-I-N-I, one, two, three, many Vietnams? How do we reproduce the spirit of of Patrice Lumumba? How do we destroy this system? Not how do we and how do we understand it systemically? Not how do we understand it performatively. And so the scale of abstraction that I was exposed to at the age of 12 was a very high scale of abstraction because that's what teenagers and college kids were were talking on that level. They were Mm. talking on that level, okay? And so it's not true that every 10 years or every 20 years, uh, intellect improves. No, I mean, anyone will tell you that uh, the 18th century was the, the, the century of enlightenment and the 19th century is like everybody lost their mind and went dumb again, you know? <laughs> so uh, what I'm trying to say is that um, uh, I could just go to places where there'd be rap sessions. Uh, I went to high school, when I got kicked out of Kenwood area, I went to high, I, I traveled the country with my parents um, for, the, for all of eighth grade, and, you know, in Detroit, uh, months after the uh, Algiers Motel incident and the rebellion there, in Chicago, for the murder of Fred Hampton, in Berkeley, for a, a year after People's Park and for the dust-up over Cambodia uh, at, at UC Berkeley. And these people were coming to the junior high school and kicking the teachers out, whether underground. Mm. Whether underground, SDS, Panthers, kicking teachers out and saying, now we're commandeering this space for anti-imperialist teachings. Okay, so in other words, what I'm trying to say is that um, 
I was raised to respect the law. I was raised to think like Martin Luther King, like the moral um, quality of an individual. But something happened and the world changed and I got a new perspective of how to, so I, so I look at the world structurally now. I don't look at the world performatively, but I didn't come to that on my own. Mm. Mm. No, that's, that's super powerful. Um, you know, ho- hopefully, you know, even this space, right, is a space for, for that, that wisdom and knowledge and experience to be, to be translated and transformed. Um, I'm going to pivot a little bit and also want to be respectful of your time. Do you have just a few more? I, I do. And I want to say that, that, that I do have, I, I have 20 more minutes. And I, I, okay, I, I want to say that, that I find it very interesting. I want you to send me an email, if you would, of the person who was the architect that talked about design so I can, uh, because what it reminded me of, um, uh, my parents did, did uh, work for Lyndon Baines Johnson, um, going to the Soviet Union and and uh, trying to end the Cold War with um, educators going over here and coming over here, going over there and coming over here. But Johnson w- was actually trying to end poverty, right? With the with the war against poverty. And here's the here's here's how anti-blackness is in the core of every little even the most liberal gesture. You know, he then decided let's build a ton of public housing units around the country. And he got prison architects uh, to design uh, public housing in the urban area. Um, So, yes, I see what that person was saying very clearly and historically. Um, Okay, so I'm going to do a slight tangent, too, because so, so, I mean, the the world that the lens through which I look at the world uh, is actually through the lens of design, right? Design for me gets at the fundamental machinations right um so what you say even about you know having um prison architects build public housing is not far from what actually undergirds this country right so thomas jefferson um has this and had this incredible fascination with the design of prisons the architecture of prisons right the panopticon um and the same architect that um well finished building the cap the the capital right in washington dc do you know what he built right before that Virginia State Penitentiary. And so before we actually even had a body right an actual physical place in which to enact laws we actually already have built the prison, right? And so that is actually a through line, actually, and, and it's not uh, not some kind of like tangential like phenomenon, right? It actually is embedded in the structure, the actual built environment structure um, of this country. And, and also in that episode, we speak about one of those housing projects, which is in my hometown of St. Louis, Pruitt-Igo, which was destroyed on national television um, and the same architect, uh, Yamasaki, I believe, is actually the same guy who built the Twin Towers, which is also destroyed on national television. So I was like, you know, if he ever built me a doghouse, I'm not going in it. Like, <laughs> but I want to I want to kind of pivot to just even your your process, like, you know, um, I, I, I've listened and, you know, did a lot of research, particularly with just even your talks, particularly with um D.S. Marriott, David Marriott, who is phenomenal. And you said something about um, 
you know, taking a, a like you had been traveling a lot and you mentioned it off the cuff and you said, so I haven't been able to do a lot of deep reading. What is your pro what is deep reading and what is your process of deep reading? Well, I um, have different kind of periods. So um, when we get to around November, um, so I, I, I'm coming off of off of a off of a uh, medical leave for cancer, which started in January, and officially I'm, I'm off of it in now, and I'll be starting back. So I will be doing administrative work and. And I won't be teaching in the fall, but we are in a quarter system. So in this winter, I'll be teaching. Uh, I think it's a course. I know it's a course on psychoanalysis for grad students, and um, it's their methodology course in psychoanalysis. And then there, and then an undergrad course on Fanon. So that means that I'll go to uh, you see these shelves one, two, the third shelf down. Um, mm-hmm. These are books I haven't touched. You know, I've read all these books, but I haven't touched them in um, almost a year. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we've got, uh, we've got the, an encyclopedia of psychoanalysis, uh, uh, Lacan's Ecree, uh, <clears throat> David Marriott's work, uh, the work of Kaja Silverman of uh, White Psychoanalytic Feminism, uh, works of Franz Fanon, um, Jared Sexton's work, and then along the, along the top here are, are these kind of uh, four beginners type books on Nietzsche, um, uh, Freud, Lacan, et cetera, et cetera. So I have to go back into that. Now, I'm not going to go into that and, and, and prepare. Um, and, and I felt that, that if you want to have a conversation, if I want to have a conversation with David Marion, it, it wasn't true because it was, what I'm about to say is not true, but this is what I felt. If I want to have a conversation with David Marriott, I got to read all, I got to get back to reading all that stuff before I can <laughs> talk to him, you know? Uh, fortunately, we were talking about his poetry and, and also, I happen to know a lot more than I think I know at the moment of anxiety before a podcast. Okay, mm. but right now um, I'm trying to mobilize uh, what's called um, uh, the language of facilitation, which is to bring together uh, the kind of uh, primary process of signification, images, mm-hmm. simile, that kind of thing. Are pre- uh, metaphor, metonymy, simile, those are, those are the aspects that come under the category of facilitation because they bring together the, the signifying processes of, of secondary processes of the preconscious and the unconscious. And that's what literature is all about. And I'm trying to write a novel, and what, and what I want t- the novel to do primarily, not totally, but primarily, is to evoke a kind of passion, whether it's uh, joy or sadness, it, it, it's, it's not pure irrational, t- but it's, it, that's where it's weighted. Whereas when I'm teaching psychoanalysis, what I want to do is provoke a kind of analysis. Um, mm-hmm. And so now what I'm doing is I'm reading about the historical time period of which the novel takes place, which is 68 to 72. I'm also reading poetry so that I kind of remember how that works. Uh, I'm rereading my own creative work and I'm, and I'm uh, rereading and reading fiction. That's, I'm, so I'm doing a deep reading in stuff that is not 
theoretical, but it's kind of mobilizing so that, because I had to build a world in fiction. Uh, with my courses, I have to critique a world that exists. And so, mm. so I'm not reading theory much now. Mm -hmm. And that's why I was a little uptight being with David Marriott. <laughs> <laughs> well, and also like, you know, trying to, because I feel like, you know, uh, you know, we live in a world of like social media and kind of like endless distraction, but like, what does it mean to like deeply read, right? Like, do you really set aside days and time and like, what, like, what is that space that you create for yourself? Yeah. Are you underlining, going back, writing about it in your journal? So it processes, you know, sinks into your mind. Like how, how do we dive into like, Fanon, you know, and even Marriott and, and make sure that we really walk away with the info, you know what I mean? Well, one of the things is um, I, 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 I'm fortunate, I, I am fortunate in that I don't um, subscribe to television. Uh, I, do, I do have Netflix and, and Topic and MHZ and, you know, but I do have, but I get guilty when I, if I binge anything or if I you know, I can feel the next day that, you know what, Frank, eight, seven to 10 at night, you should have been reading. You should have been reading. What were you doing? Were you watching something, you know? Now, the, the nice thing is that I, I, don't, I don't channel flip because I don't have channels, but I do sometimes know that I go somewhere. That's my primary process of signification saying, You'll have a lot more fun if you sit down and watch a series and just chill out, you know? Mm -hmm. And then the next day, secondary process of signification say, dude, you didn't get a thousand words done yesterday and you didn't read this book on, on the Red Scare, you know, and how it happened and, you know, for your character or whatever. So I do a lot of underlining. I also do a lot of journaling. Um, and so I have... A, a, um, so there's a, there are journals for quotes, mm. and and then and and, and 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 images in in the creative process, and uh, in the in the critical process, there are what I'm trying to do when I when I journal and and, and say copy something down from a passage from a book, I'm trying to figure out I'm writing I'm rewriting something in the journal that informs my analytic apparatus so so that um i'm interested in paradigm in other words mm -hmm. i'm interested in what and where what someone is and where they land prior to their actions so by by that i mean that um when you're born when you're the mother is pregnant they do an ultrasound depending upon what the ultrasound shows, the, the, the genitals on the ultrasound then produce value into the world of the parents. And that value is differentiated along an artificial axis, but is treated as real, called gender. And then they go home and they paint the room blue or look for Johnny, Jim, or whatever, and paint the room pink and look for Jane or Maria. And so what, what does that mean? It means that there's a fetus here, but an entire context has, a paradigm has been produced to um, exceed, because it's like the ocean for a fish, and anticipate the coming of that fetus. 
The fetus mm. doesn't come and say, oh, Jack, you know what I like to be? Uh... <laughs> And, and so when I'm reading um, critical theory, I'm reading for ways in which someone does or does not understand that. I mean, in other words, a lot of the miseducation of an Anglo-American is very different than the miseducation of a continental European or the miseducation of a South African, places where I've taught, you know. The miseducation of an Anglo-American is that the Anglo-American is heavily burdened with empiricism and observation as being values in themselves. And so the, the Anglo-American comes, hits set after school, highly deficient in terms of a capacity to think abstractly compared to other people around the world, because since Matthew Arnold's time, education has been about what do you see, what do you say, who do you think you are? What is your experience? You know, and so Americans really cannot think systemically, cannot think paradigmatically. In fact, we're encouraged not to. We're told that we can do anything and be anyone we want, and that our voice and our observations are are what's most important. And so, what I'm reading, I'm trying to figure out. Even even in someone who disagrees with me, there's going to be a point in the passage where in the in the text where they hit upon, where I, can, where I can symptomatically understand what they think about paradigm, even if they mm-hmm. don't talk about paradigm. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and that circles us back to our, our starting point, because that's what we did with Afro-pessimism. We actually critiqued uh, the psychoanalytic foundation of feminism and the Marxist foundation of social movements to say, what do they... What do they assume to be true about paradigm? Because what they assume to be true about paradigm is inadequate to thinking black suffering. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I have two more questions, um, and then we are we are we are out. We're gonna I, obviously. I think you're gonna have to come back because. I I feel like we didn't even. Get, <laughs> if you saw my list of questions, I touched three. Um, but this 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 one is a little bit you know interesting. Um, you know, you mentioned your wife Anita, who actually this is dedicated to, who is actually not black. And so, how in this world of Afro pessimism and understanding these kind of paradig- paradigmatic frames um, and scenes that we find ourselves in, how does one reconcile having a romantic partner who is a human? I don't think that that's an easy question. Um, yeah. I, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, one of the things we have to read, so, so I'll, I'll, I can go off in tangent, so I'll try to cut to the chase. Um, I, I think if, I'm going to sound glib, but, uh, and by sounding glib, I may sound as though I figured it out from day to day performatively, which I have not. However, what I the glib response, and we can work back through it, is is that there is no reconciling. Mm. Um, once you once you, and I don't want to say that I'm better than other people who 
who, you know, um, hammer their heads against the wall, you know, trying to reconcile. Um, but uh, if this is a problem of paradigmatic proportions, mm -hmm. then it will not be reconciled through interpersonal dynamics. Mm -hmm. the, paradigmatic, the paradigmatic proportions will erupt in interpersonal dynamics. <laughs> you know, but, uh, but to say that they'll be reconciled would be to say that I can step outside of who I am and step outside of the paradigm prior mm. to a revolution that destroys the paradigm and deal with this love affair. Mm. Um, so I would, I would say that, um, you, know, there, you know, I have not seen uh, the play called Slave Play, but I've, I've heard about it. And I think it's, I, what, what I've heard, I have two thoughts, and I, I want your listeners and viewers to know these are highly provisional. Uh, because I have, I'm ordering the book. Um, it was, it was part. It, it was, it came here about a year ago, but the pandemic was such that I didn't want to go, uh, you know, to, to 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 see it. So my first thought is, I think, is that from what I've heard, I think it's work of pure genius. Uh, my other thought is that those characters are and are not me and my wife. Mm. In other words. We have to think of, we have to understand that, that, that characters are scaled down projections of what the writer needs for the argument that the writer is making. Mm -hmm. and, um, and there's a film that I teach um, a lot called Manderley by Lars von Trier. And uh, at the end of the, and, and what, I, what, what I'm trying to say here is that what, what there is a, there is a space for people who are human and people who are black talking about the impossibility of the kind of recon reconciling that you talked about that you asked about and moving on without reconciling it mm. but making that a part of their daily or weekly or whatever dynamic Okay, and I think once you get, I think that's all we can actually hope for. On the other end of the mm -hmm. spectrum is is Afrocentrism, which says cleanse your mind, have only a black partner, and and um, and cure the dynamics of Afro of of anti-blackness in that way. Well, well, David Marriott and Fanon have Fanon showed us, even though he's queasy about it in Black Skin, White Mask, but that, you know what? Um, Anti-blackness is not outside there. It's inside here and mm. outside there. Mm. And so, um, and so to, to, to suggest that I'm going to reconcile the problem by producing black babies, by having a black partner, by buying black, by living black, um, is to um, suggest that I have powers beyond what my psyche is motivating me towards, and 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 I can actually live in another world. Mm. I can live in another world without having a violent revolution of any kind. I can just live mm. in another world and make my other way. And you know that that um, that is problematic 
Because you're never more populated by your own anti-black thoughts than you are when you're by yourself just waking up in the morning. So, so we have to think of this as a struggle and mm-hmm. put the word protracted on the part of it. But it doesn't mean the other side either. It doesn't mean that I can have interracial love affairs as though this, as though one person is a slave and one person is not a master. As though, as though there's no master, as though the master-slave dynamic doesn't exist. That's, that's mm-hmm. the integrationist view. You know, mm-hmm. and both those mm-hmm. views, the integrationist view and the Afrocentrist view, are being motivated. If you do a rhetorical analysis of their language and their texts, they're actually being driven by their understanding and 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 kind of grasping of secondary processes of signification. In other words, they have they very seldom have anything to say about the unconscious. And what mm-hmm. that means, and so, um, and that's what makes it, that's what makes the psychoanalytic part of this so scary, because it's not the white world just responding against you. It's like David Marriott says, my imago, my image in the mirror, is something that I, my unconscious tells me to garrison myself against and to fight against at the same time. Mm. Even as my preconscious interest says, hate all whiteies, you know? Um, so it's, it's really to, to suggest, and, and I have people who, who, who have absolute problems. I mean, people who say, uh, um, people who do not engage in the psychoanalytic or psychic aspects of Afro-pessimism, and they sometimes write me and say, oh, you have a white lover. I'm going to burn your book, so I'm not going to, you know. I, so in other words, they don't understand that this book here is a critique. It is not a manifesto. It will not help you live your life. It will mm. help you understand your life and give you more problems understanding it than you thought you had. And then you must do the rest. That is a beautiful place to wrap, man. Before I ask my last question, um, I just want to acknowledge you, Frank, for putting this to paper, right? Like giving us a vocabulary to our lived experience. You know, uh, I can't remember. Uh, I think it's Wittgenstein who who speaks about the ways in which our reality is limited by the language we have to which to address it, right? And so what you've done is provided just a canon of vocabulary and understanding to help us see, right? To help us see those those um, invisible um, paradigms and, and images that we uh, are constantly trying to fight against, um, even through, right? Being traced by, you know, being um, tracked by the FBI or like having radioactive material dropped on you like from a ceiling above i mean like the stories are crazy like guys please go get afro pessimism um so you can get into this but i know that that's not easy and i know even i'm sure a part of your personal relationship right with your wife is up is 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 a part of the practice as well and 
without you, man, like we wouldn't be able to see any clearer, like, and even the secondary level of Afro pessimism that you speak about, like could not exist without this foundational work. And also without the relationships that you've built, you know, across, right, to help inform it. And so I just want to acknowledge and thank you so much for that. You've helped me even see the things that I couldn't see. And I'm out here really trying to see shit. Um, uh, but the the last question is, man, like, if you had everything at your behest, right, what is the world that you imagine for the future. Maybe there is Afro-optimism, but what is the world you imagine for the future? I would like, I, I, I'm sorry to disappoint you. Um, I, I don't think that too much. Uh, uh, not, not that I shouldn't. Um, I, I, I just, I, I don't. Um, mm. here's, here's, there are two reasons for that. Uh, the, the, first, the first reason is that um, Sometimes, you know, I had to rewrite this book eight times, and it was not always joyous. You know, sometimes rehashing the material is, um, I mean, this is pleasurable, because I'm meeting a, 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 a black intellectual who's of another generation, and Kaniqua is here, and we're having this conversation, and I'm, and I'm feeling something, a connection. But normally, I feel isolation, Mm. And um, and normally I feel uh, it, you know, it's getting better all the time, you know, be, with, with more and more people. But, but oftentimes, one of the things I understand is that uh, black as slave is an empirical is it's part of the epistemy that was that produced the modern world, and so for me to project beyond that would be for me to have the hubris to say that I have a, a language and a vision beyond the words and the tools that I have now, and I do not have that. What I, mm. do, what I do have is an understanding that this did not always exist, and there can be an epistemological break, a catastrophe that brings us to a new... So I would be, I would be um, a fantasist, having written mm. what I said having written what I've written and, and understood what I've understood about knowledge production and where I, I think that black is the word that doesn't actually um, travel. It doesn't have um, endless forms of commutabi commutability. In other words, like all words, according to semiotics and psychoanalysis, can, be, can change their value based upon how they're used. And one of the things that, that Patterson has helped us understand is that slave doesn't change its value. That slave is the necessary entity outside of the world of people whose value can change. Mm. So that's really interesting to me. Um, could there be a world in which there are no slaves, psychically or empirically? I'm not so sure about that. Can there be a world where blackness and slaveness are not the same? Yes. Can we ever get there? I don't know. Okay. And, uh, so, um, so then, um, what, what was the, because I had another thing to say. The question was, how do I? Yeah, what's the world you imagine for the future? Is there like an Afro-optimism? No, but it doesn't mean that pessimism. <laughs> 
But pessimism is a clinical word here. It's pessimism. Mm. It's, 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 not, it's not an emotional word. It's, it's stolen from Antonio Gramsci, who, who in his prison notebooks wrote that what I'm working on here is a pessimism of the intellect, which is to say a pessimism of the way thought has been thought. That's what we've been doing. We're, we're pessimistic about the way thinking about liberation has been thought. But we're optimist. But he says, "I have optimism of the will, which is an optimism of the working class in Milan to commandeer the factories or the Soviets to have a revolution." I have a profound optimism in black struggle. Mm. Uh, I I I think that that's one of the reasons why everyone wants and does not want black people in their coalitions. Because black people will give you an energy that's beyond language. Uh, uh, because we are, if, if we're dealing with something like police brutality in, in Oakland and we bring blackness into that, we're actually saying we're against black police brutality with our Samoan and Chicano, Chicana brothers and sisters. But what we're moving towards is not the end of police brutality. We're energized towards the idea of the end of the police, which is a very mm. different kind of, of way of being in the body than the junior partners have. They want, genuinely want access to civil society. We genuinely understand, we want it, but we understand that we can never have it. And so we're motivated by something larger, and it's that largeness of energy. You can't have a revolution without blackness. Everyone knows this. Mm -hmm. but everyone also knows that once we get our shit, we don't want black people anywhere around because they're continuing the struggle in a way that we want to consolidate power. Uh, so um, mm -hmm. basically, mm -hmm. as I said before, I'm 66, going on 67, and what I really want is to get through all this without getting killed and then live somewhere in the Mediterranean and uh, say I did my bit. <laughs> <laughs> you know what, bro? When you when you spoke about like you know that there could be no revolution without blackness and what blackness people what black people bring uh, is, is beyond language. For me, that is the black imagination. Yes, it is. It is right? that yeah. that that is that is the fuel, right? Like that is the 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 kind of largesse of possibility that that is addictive. Um, but anyway. Frank, this has been an absolute fucking pleasure, man. I cannot wait to have another conversation really, 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 really soon. Have an incredible afternoon and thank you for sharing it with us. Whew. All right, we made it. Two episodes on Afro-pessimism with Frank B. Wilderson III. Huh. How are you feeling? Let us know your thoughts over on Instagram and Twitter at Black Imagination. And be sure to check out this conversation and others at blackimagination.com, or you can also watch it over on YouTube at the Institute of Black Imagination. You know, this conversation reminds me of a quote from the Reverend James Forbes um, of Riverside Church when he says, what do you do with the rage within? You go build a city. Stay curious and keep dreaming.